0: We are four weeks into an eight-week study on Jesus' most famous sermon, the the Sermon on the Mount. And as he begins this sermon, he begins it with eight statements known as the Beatitudes. And as I consider all of Scripture and and all of Jesus' teaching, I can't think of any passage that that is more powerful and more important and can help us learn even more how to live a life like Jesus'. That's what these are all about. It's about being like Jesus, the Beatitudes. You know, how can we be like Jesus? Does anybody think it's, it's just kind of hard to be like Jesus sometimes? Anybody with me? Do you think it's hard to be like Jesus sometimes? Like, like, like when college football is canceled? But praise the Lord, the Buckeyes played yesterday and we won. It's hard to be like Jesus sometimes in life. It's hard to be like Jesus when you're frustrated. It's hard to be like Jesus when you're when you're tired. It's hard to be like Jesus in a COVID world. And I don't know if I'm the only one, but is anybody else tired of the pandemic? Is anybody else tired of the politics? Anybody tired of watching our cities burn? Tired of unrest and the issues going on in the world? Tired of seeing children hurt? Tired of seeing businesses hurt, businesses closed up? Tired of this, you know, in the in the chapel, out of the chapel, in the restaurant, out of the restaurant, kids can go to school. They can't go to school. You know, I don't know about you, but I'm really really tired of, of that. So please understand that I'm, I'm preaching to myself today, first of all, because even when we're tired, even in the midst of a of a deeply polarized, incredibly divided, racially charged, fearful, anxiety ridden, panic stricken COVID nineteen world, we the church are still called to be like jesus the sermon on the mount is the first large-scale public sermon that we have of jesus and of all the words that jesus could have chosen to use first here in this sermon it's this word we talked about it back a few weeks ago when we started the series it's this word blessed 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 it's a word that might not describe a whole lot of people when that you run across on a day-to-day basis when you understand the root meaning of this word or what it means it means to be deeply and totally satisfied. It means to be, to be wholly content. It means to be filled to the full. It's, like, it's, it's a deep abiding joy, no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what the issues are going around you. It just means that I'm satisfied, I'm, I'm full, I've got joy despite the circumstances, no matter what. And Jesus starts his first sermon with this word and and a series of sayings based on this word, blessed, 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 blessed. Eight times he says blessed. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek we looked at last week. Not the weak, but the meek. And if you missed the past three weeks' messages, those are available on our website our Apple Podcasts or on our Facebook page. But this week it's, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They shall be filled. They shall be full. They shall be satisfied. What are you hungry for? Freedom? Peace? Relationship? Comfort? Connection? Personal touch? Everybody is hungering for something. Some people want things to go back to the the pre-COVID days. There's a hunger for, for normalcy, if we ever really knew normal. you know, the, we, we hunger for all sorts of things. We hunger for, for racial reconciliation. We hunger for healing. And deep down, I believe what people are truly desperate for is spiritual. There's a hunger and thirst in this nation and around the world, and it's a spiritual desire. It's a hunger that cannot, will not be filled by anything except God. Joe Biden can't fill it. Donald Trump can't fill it. The Supreme Court can't fill it. College football, no, college football cannot even fill it. Cannot fill that hunger inside of you. The only thing that will settle and satisfy the deepest and most intimate desire that you and I have is God. It's Him. It's Jesus. It's only Jesus. Now, I understand this message may seem kind of basic. You know why? Because it is. Because we're talking about the deepest needs that people have. Now, first, we need to understand here what Jesus is saying. This word righteous, you know, this this word righteous is kind of hard for us in 21st century America to understand what it means. And and basically, righteous means to be right with God. Righteous means to be right with God. It's it's gotten used in other ways over the years. You know, when I was a teenager, you know, if something was cool, you'd say, oh, that's righteous. Well, as kind of a misuse of the word there, because oftentimes things that we would call righteous weren't right with God, okay? But righteous means to be right with God. And if you consider the world around you, if you consider your own world, your own life, your own ways, your own thoughts, your own house, your own family, your own relationships, it's easy to see that there's not a whole lot in the world that is necessarily right with God. Or on the converse, there's a lot that's not right with God in the world. And what it means is that there's a whole lot of unrighteousness in our world today, and that shouldn't surprise us. Jesus talks about that. The Word talks about that. God warns us that, that in the latter days you will have unrighteousness in the world. It's interesting. I ran across this a long time ago, and I thought it was kind of interesting for, for a knucklehead like me. Sometimes I have to be told things a couple times. My wife knows that. I hear her saying amen there in the back. But, but, but sometimes, any, anybody else have to be told something twice sometimes? God tells us something twice in the book of Proverbs. He says, he says it in Proverbs 14, and then a couple, of, uh, a couple of chapters later in Proverbs 16, he says the exact same thing. Like, Walt, well, you didn't read it back. You didn't listen to it back in chapter 14. It says there in, in chapter 14 and chapter 16, it says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. God's thought that was so important. He put there twice, you know, a couple chapters apart. There's a way that seems right for us. A way that we think is the right way, but it leads to death. And would you agree that we need some righteousness on earth today? We need some rightness. We need something some to be right with God. In the time we have this morning, I want to break this down for you. There's, there's three aspects of righteousness I'd like for us to look at. And they are the legal the moral and the social aspect of righteousness. First off, um, if you have your life notes, I've got them written down there. And this morning I made it easy on you because I knew that it would be difficult outside and the wind and and the sunshine. So I gave you all the fill in the blanks. So they're there for you already. Legal righteousness means being in a right relationship with God. This is when you confess your sin to him. You confess Jesus. You, you confess that Jesus is Lord of your life and that you're committing your life to him. You recognize your need for a savior. You, you recognize, you know, you say, I'm a sinful person, Lord, and I can't deal with my own sin. And so I accept your righteousness because my own righteousness is nothing. The Bible says it's like filthy rags. It's, it's like something to be thrown on the dung heap. You know, take your own interpretation of that there. I, I need your righteousness which is made possible through, through the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to be made right with you. That is what legal righteousness is. It's, it's the moment you confess your sin and you make Jesus Lord of your life, you're forgiven and you're made right. You're put positionally, legally, you're, putting into a, you're put into a right standing with God. You're in a right relationship, and He seals you with His Holy Spirit. Not because you're good, but because He is good. And that is what salvation is. It's legal right standing with God. It's a relationship made possible through Christ. The second aspect of righteousness is this. It's moral righteousness. And moral moral righteousness is the character and conduct that pleases God. Character and conduct That pleases God this comes after legal righteousness, okay? You may you may do conduct that pleases God Before you're saved before you have a legal righteousness with him, but that doesn't count because it's in your own strength It's in your own power. You need to be saved You need to be in a legal righteous state with God a positional righteousness with him for for your moral righteousness to have any effect and unfortunately the world thinks you know the world thinks that you get to heaven by being a good moral person And that's not what Scripture teaches. It says you have to have this legal righteousness first. Then comes the moral righteousness. Jesus said, if you love me, you will what? Obey my commandments. If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. So just because we're saved doesn't mean that we're perfect. Is that a a surprise to anybody here? Just because we're saved doesn't mean that we're perfect. Sometimes we still sin. You sin, I sin, we all sin. But now that you're saved, this is a daily choice that you and I have to choose character and conduct that pleases the Lord. Once we're saved, this is the light that we're called to embrace, this light of righteous living. To live a life that would bring honor and bring glory to God and follow His way, not our own way. Not that way that the Proverbs talking about the way that we think is right, but it isn't. Not that But this, as we've been talking about in this series, you follow Christ and not the crowd. It's moral righteousness. And as I said last week, we're living in the middle, in the in-between time of what's been done for us. We've been saved, but not everything has been made perfectly right as of yet. You know, we're saved, we're being saved, we will be saved. And the righteousness of heaven, the perfection of heaven, where, where Jesus says, Behold, all things are new, that's still coming. That's in, that's in the future. We're, we're still waiting. We're in anticipation for that moment. And so moral righteousness then is my daily choice to deny myself, deny my flesh, deny the way that I want to go, and to walk in step with the Spirit of God. Paul said, walk in step with the Spirit, and you will not satisfy the desires of the flesh. Here's the third part, social righteousness. Social righteousness is actively seeking another's freedom from oppression or injustice. When Jesus began his ministry, he was there and he was in the synagogue and he opened up the scrolls and he read this passage. We have it in Luke. It's from the Old Testament, though. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, and it says, it says there, he closed the, the, and handed the scroll back and he says, this is fulfilled today in your midst. In other words, the kingdom of God is here, Jesus is announcing. And by fo- poor, he's not talking about financially poor people here. He's talking about spiritually impoverished people. He says he has sent me to proclaim freedom for those who are prisoners, prisoners of sin and recovery of sight to the blind. He's not talking about a physical blindness here, folks. He's talking about a spiritual blindness, a blindness that the blinded people still blinds people to the things of God and the ways of God. He says to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the kingdom is here. God's favor is here. God has entered into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus promised for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for for right standing with God, for those who hunger and thirst for him, his promise is that they will be satisfied like nothing in this world will satisfy or can satisfy. Later in in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will say this, he'll say, but seek first, we sang it a while ago, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. He's saying, you seek me first, you seek righteousness, you seek my kingdom and everything that you need, everything you need, you will have. It's a promise it's a promise of satisfaction. It's a promise of fulfillment. It's a promise of peace. That when you hunger and thirst, not for the things of the world, but for me, for God, when you hunger for righteousness, for right standing with God, you will have everything that you need. No matter how enticing the things of the world may be, they will never, ever satisfy you the way that Jesus promises to satisfy those who seek Him. So what are the things of this world? Basically, the things of the world, I believe, can be be summed up into three different categories. Pleasure, performance, or possessions. Pleasure, performance, or possessions. And you will not find lasting satisfaction in pleasure. Whatever brings you pleasure, whatever you desire, whatever the latest or greatest thrill may be, you will not find lasting satisfaction there. Because the problem is, when you get what you want, pleasure-wise, what happens? You want more. You want more of whatever, whatever that is. You can fill in the blank with anything you want, whether it's drugs, alcohol, sex, thrills, food, gambling, any, anything. Anything can become an idol for us. Anything we can become obsessed with and we just pursue it instead, instead of pursuing God, trying to find satisfaction in the things of the world. Pleasure isn't going to fulfill us. King Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, the wealthiest man to ever live, said this in Ecclesiastes 1. He said, Our eyes can never see enough to be satisfied. Our ears can never hear enough. You know, this king, he had anything he wanted. Anything he wanted. He said over in Ecclesiastes 2, he says, Anything I wanted, I got. I did not design myself any pleasure. I was proud of everything I had worked for, and all this was my reward. Then I thought about all that I had done and how hard I'd worked for it, and I realized that it didn't mean a thing. It was like a chasing after the wind of no use at all. He said, I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. If I saw it, I got it. Now, I'm not saying that that's the best thing, but this is Solomon's testimony. He said, I denied myself nothing that my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. I had it all. I indulged in anything and, and everything I wanted to indulge in. I had my fill of everything and I wanted to have my fill of. It. And at the end of the day, his declaration he said, Of all my pursuits, of all my pleasures that I gained this side of heaven, I realized that everything was meaningless under the sun. A chasing after the wind. You ever try to chase the wind? You know, don't do it right now, but afterwards, you know, try to chase the wind. It's a fool's errand. It's futile. You can't do that. He said, I went from this thing to that thing and more of this thing and back to that thing. He says, I gave myself everything I could possibly desire, hoping that I would finally find that one person. You know, I forget how many wives Solomon had, but he had a bunch, a bunch, a bunch of wives. You know, you get tired of even thinking about having that, 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 many, that many wives. He said, you know, you won't find that one person, that one experience, that one pleasure that would fill, will fill you. He said, it's all meaningless it's kind of like when have you ever been there have you ever walked up the refrigerator and you open the refrigerator door and you look in and you know there's something that you want and you cook around and you stand there for five minutes looking and just trying to figure out what is it that i need to satisfy me but you can't figure it out you can anybody else like that you ever had that okay i want to make sure just checking you can't figure out what it is that you need and that's how many many people live their lives they know they need something they, they, they know They say, I'm, not, I'm not, just not fulfilled. there's something not satisfying about my life. There's something that I need because I'm, I'm still restless, and in my spirit, I know there must be something more. And isn't that why we sin and we embrace sin and we look for satisfaction in things other than God, even though sin promises what only God can provide? Hebrews chapter 11 says that the pleasure of sin will only last for a season. Why? Because when you embrace sin, when you embrace the pleasure of sin, if you do that now, whatever dishonors God will eventually defile you. Whatever dishonors God will eventually defile you. We never find lasting satisfaction pursuing pleasure. You also will not find lasting satisfaction in performance. King Solomon, again, was one of the most accomplished people to have ever lived. And yet he says, what does a man get for all of his hard work? Days full of sorrow and grief and restless bitter nights. Wow. Thanks for the encouragement, Saul. He says it is all utterly ridiculous. All utterly ridiculous. Well, with sales of over 200 million records worldwide, at the age of 31, Taylor Swift is one of the best-selling music artists of all time. Her accolades include 10 Grammy Awards, an Emmy Award. She is the most awarded act at the American Music Awards with 29 wins. She's also the most awarded act at Billboard Music Awards with 23 wins at the age of 31. The reason I bring this up is because she said something very interesting as she was reaching the top. She said one day, she said, here I am in a room all by myself with nobody to celebrate this amazing Accomplishment. And then it dawned on me, she said, that what I just did, I'm going to be expected to do it time and time and time again. Coach Urban Meyer, former coach at Ohio State, says a similar thing about football. He talks about every coach's dream to win a national championship. And Coach Meyer says that you think that when you win a national championship, you get to check off that box and you're just going to feel satisfied for the rest of your life. He continues and says, what you don't understand before you win that first one is that you become a slave to your own success. Because now the first thought you have after you win the national championship, even though so few will actually ever get there, is this. Okay, I did it this year. Now I'm going to have to do it again next year. Not only do I have to do it, I'm expected to do it. And now every year I'm expected to do what I just did. Pleasure and performance do not bring lasting satisfaction. Well, what about possessions? Well, King Solomon later says, there is no end to my work and my eyes are never satisfied with riches in Ecclesiastes 4. The wealthiest man living, and he says, I'm never satisfied with riches. You know, some of you are probably saying, well, let me try that, Solomon. Let me see if I can do it. You know, I'd like to try that on Versailles. But you will never find lasting satisfaction in possessions. It's been said that at least poor people have hope because the poor think if I can just have what the rich have then I'll be fulfilled if I could just have more if I could just have what that person has I'll be satisfied and the rich know that that's not true why because the more I have the more I want the more you have the more you want it's human nature it's it's it's, it's how we are and I've seen I've met some of the most miserable people on this planet who seem to have be the wealthiest by the earthly standards, but yet they are destitute and impoverished by heavenly standards. And that's why it says in Ecclesiastes 5 that if you love money, you will never be satisfied. If you long to be rich, you will never get all you want. It's useless. So you may be wondering, well, you know, Walt, thanks for the, the uplifting message. You know, where does that leave us? You know, where do we go from here? What do I do? If, if none of that will satisfy me, then what will? Well, first thing you need to understand is that your hunger is not physical. Say it to yourself. Say, my hunger is not physical. My hunger is not physical. My hunger is Spiritual. Only God can fill the most intimate longing, the most desperate craving, the deepest desire of your soul. Nothing this side of heaven can fill that hole in your heart that belongs to the Spirit of God. There's not a person, there's not a paycheck, there's not a a promotion, there's no accomplishment. You know, those things, no bank account. None of that can, can, can fill you. No glory to be gained this side of heaven that will fulfill you like God wants to fulfill you, that will satisfy your soul. Only God can fill that spiritual void in your soul. And you may not recognize it because we have this habit. We, we were just we're just innately tuned to chase after pleasure and performance and possessions, looking for something to fill this need inside of us when the only thing that will fill it is Jesus. And that's why I want to give you this morning two keys to lasting satisfaction. This side of heaven, two keys to lasting satisfaction the first is to acknowledge your need for God. Acknowledge your need for God. Admit that only God can satisfy the longings of my soul. The world can't satisfy them. My spouse can't satisfy them. My kids can't satisfy them. Even my grandkids can't satisfy the longing of my soul. Only God can satisfy the longing. Admit and acknowledge your need for Him. God created your soul. So that what your soul desires, you are incapable of giving it. You can't feed your soul what it needs. Only God can. That's why Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for a right relationship with God. For they will be satisfied. Because only God can satisfy. I can't make myself right with God. Only Jesus can. It's why Romans uh, 10 9, Paul writes this. He says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be made whole. And, and, and that, word, that word saved that, that's used there, it, it's a wholeness. It's a, it's a peace. It's in the, in the Hebrew context, it's the shalom that you have. Now, notice these words, confess and believe, and it's very close to what Jesus said in John chapter 6 when he said, I am bread of life he who comes to me will never go hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty but I ask you what is the point what is the point of knowing that you need help if you're not willing to acknowledge your need what's the point if you're not willing to humble yourself and cry out to the Lord and say God I need you I need you? you see God's not playing hard to get God isn't isn't trying to trying to not be found, in Jeremiah twenty nine. And I didn't write this in your life notes, but go ahead and write down the scripture reference: Jeremiah twenty nine, verse thirteen and fourteen. Jeremiah twenty nine, thirteen and fourteen. He says, "You will seek me and find me, when." And if I if I'd written in your notes, I would said circle when. So go back and circle in your Bibles. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. In other words, there's nothing. There's nothing before me, God's saying. When you seek something with all your heart, that's it. There's nothing in the way of you seeking that thing. And then he says in verse 14, I will be found by you. But it's not when you're seeking him half-heartedly. It's not when you're seeking him only on Sundays. It's not when you're seeking him when it's easy. It's not when you're seeking it when it suits you. It's when you seek me with all your heart. Here's the second key to fulfillment be kingdom-minded. Be kingdom-minded. When we first hear King Solomon writing in Ecclesiastes 1, and he says everything is meaningless, he sounds really discouraging until you understand that once he's got your attention, a couple chapters later he brings clarification about what he's talking about here. He's actually not saying that everything and all the created cosmic universe is meaningless. What he's saying here is all things done under the sun are meaningless. Now let me, let me explain that to you. Everything that I do under the sun that will impact only under the sun is meaningless. Everything that's done only in this realm, in this earth. You see, there, there's no over the sun, no heavenly, in, eternal impact. Living under the sun, living only for this life, only for this, only for the here and now, that is meaningless. It's, it's, it's going to burn away. It's going to be rubble. And that's why later in uh, Ecclesiastes 5, Solomon says, therefore stand in awe of God. In other words, keep it in perspective with God. Keep it in perspective with eternity. You know, he says, I know that everything God does, everything of God will, will endure forever. And so you could say it this way. You could say everything we do for the kingdom matters say it with me. Everything I do for the kingdom matters. Not everything we do this side of heaven matters, okay? But everything we do this side of heaven for the kingdom of God matters. Jesus asked the question, he said, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world, all this, all the cosmos, all the earth, and yet he loses his own soul because he hasn't stored up treasure in heaven? Isaiah, you know, 700 years earlier asked the question, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? He's looking at the eternal, the eternal scheme of things. Only two things will ever outlast this world, the human soul and the word of God. Everything else perishes. And Solomon is saying everything we do under the sun that will only ever make a difference under the sun are the things that we do for God And for his kingdom. From 1995 to 1997, I had the honor of serving. I was a Navy chaplain, but I served with the United States Marine Corps for those two years. And the Commandant of the Marine Corps, the 31st Commandant of the Marine Corps, was a guy by the name of um, General Charles Krulak. He served as the 31st Commandant from 1995 to 1999. And General Krulak said that there were two things, there were basically two things the Marines did well and that they had as their mission. One was to make Marines and the other was to win battles. And I don't know if you know the, much about the military and about the history, but the Marines are basically the ones that we send in first. They're kind of, they're, they're the U.S.'s quick reaction force. And, they're, and, they're, and, then, and they, they go in and they fight and they fight hard. And there's just something about the ethos of the Marine Corps that that happens either at Paris Island over in South Carolina or here in San Diego. At, at, the, at the Marine Corps Recruit Depot. There's just something that happens that changes an individual. That's why they say, once a Marine, always a Marine. And, and they're, 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 they say there's no no better friend and no worse enemy than a, than a Marine. They, they have such a reputation for such fierce fighters that the, the, I can't remember the German phrase, but the Germans, when fighting them in Belleau Wood during World War II, basically called them devil dogs because they were just so, so voracious in fighting against the Germans. So the Marines mission, Marine Corps' mission is to make Marines and then win battles. There's an analogy here that we can see for the church. The church, Jesus told us in, in Matthew 28 when he gave his charge to the church at the, before he ascended to heaven, he said, I want you to go therefore and what? Make disciples. Make disciples, teaching them all the things. And that's what the Marines do. The Marines make Marines. We should be about making disciples. And, and, and I tell you, as, as I've reflected on this over the years, man, I wish the church did a much better job at making disciples than what they do, because we don't do a very good job of making disciples. You know, I've, I've, I've been parts of churches where they're very good at getting people dunked, getting them, getting them, you know, baptized and then putting a little notch in their Bible belt. But do they really disciple people, bring them along to, to help them grow in Christ? Because that's what leads to advancing the kingdom. And the Marines win battles. Well, we're supposed to win battles too. And the only way we win battles is, is if we're good disciples. If we're disciplined. That whole word, discipline. Disciple, discipline. get it takes discipline there. And so we should be about, the church should be about making disciples and advancing the kingdom. And when we understand what we're about and our mission and what we're supposed to do, we can claim that promise that Jesus said that even the gates of hell will not prevail against his kingdom. So the question I leave you with this morning is, are you kingdom minded? Do you think about God and his kingdom? Because when you, when you, when you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll be thinking about his kingdom. You'll want to advance his kingdom. You'll, be, you'll want to be a disciple yourself, to be disciplined yourself in your walk with the Lord. as as you serve Him, and as you take ground against the kingdom of the enemy and as you expand the kingdom in this world, it's easy for us to sit back and complain about how the world's going to hell in a handbasket, isn't it? But that's not what Jesus called us to do. He called us to do something about it. He called us to be kingdom-minded, to hunger and thirst for righteousness and advance His kingdom on this earth. Amen. joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.